You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. Uh, We're going to dig right into the Word. We've been going for the last several months through the book of Mark, and we're concluding this this time together on Easter, and so hopefully this has been uh, a season where you've, you've, you've dug in at a deeper level to your faith and just actually not uh, applying what you think you know about Jesus, but learning from his very mouth about who he says he is and, and how he says everything changes when you follow him. Um, one more time, I'll plug it just real quickly. There is, in case you weren't here when I said it, uh, about 15, 20 minutes ago, there is a vote piece of paper on your seat. Everyone gets one. Uh, would you please take time, if you regularly go here, fill it out. It's an affirmation vote. We're elder ran, and so that means we make decisions as a group for the most part. Um, but these are guys that have authority over my life that I submit my own life to that I trust implicitly that love Jesus with all their heart. And so uh, we're bringing on a new elder. His name is Larry Syme. And you heard from him last week, and his bio was in the bulletin. And so on this week is a Sunday that we vote a vote of affirmation. So please, in the offering, I don't even know what you call those things. They're not buckets. So offering boxes by the door, um, could you please fill that out and put that in there so that we can tally those all up and let you know what happened next Sunday. Um, As we get started, I want to ask you guys a question. We're in, in Mark chapter 12. I saw a lot of you, I was trying to greet everyone as they came through the door. I saw a lot of you are bringing your Bibles. I would encourage that. Keep bringing your Bibles to church. You can also find one under your seat. Uh, You can see the scripture on the screen. And I use my electronic Bible here from uh, this stage. But bring your Bibles to church. But I I wanna, as we get into this story, Mark chapter 12, I wanna ask you guys if you've ever heard this statement. Um, There's something that I heard in counseling from a high schooler about 15 years ago that I think most people have heard, but it was the first time I ever heard it. And I was talking to them about conflict. It was a a teenage girl about conflict going on in their life. And and it seems like, and I know this is really like no other teenagers ever dealt with this. Um, It seems like it was really unique just to her. Um, But she said her dad told her uh, this statement about why she always has a new enemy every week in her class. And maybe you've heard this statement. You can kind of nod your head. Anyone here work with teenagers? Anyone blessed to have that amazing privilege of working with kids that never, ever have conflict in their life? Um, she said this. She said, and you can help me finish it if you already know it. She said, talking about conflict, the enemy of my enemy. You heard this? Okay, I'm going to enlighten you. The enemy, and think about it, ponder it, it's deep. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so I I had a house parent at Central stop me after the first service, and he goes, man, is that true? I was a probation officer for about 100 years, and I always found that to be true. His name's Kevin. Uh, He said, there's these two girls that are kind of running around school together, and they're just bouncing down the hallways, and they always uh, are just best buds. And then I saw her by herself on Wednesday, and I said, what's wrong? And she said, we're not friends anymore. And uh, it it had to do with another relationship or something like that. And Kevin simply said, I bet you they'll be best friends again on Monday. And so the the voting in Vegas odds are out. We can see if that actually happens. But the friend or the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so as long as you like someone, don't like someone that I don't like, then even if we have nothing in common, we found common ground in hating someone. 
And unfortunately, it doesn't just uh, have a context that applies to uh, kids going through puberty who are emotional. This takes place from zero to 100 in every timeline in history of mankind. And the reason I bring it up is that's exactly what's taking place as we dig into the scripture today. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so what I'm gonna do this morning is I'm gonna give you some background information on the text. Uh, I just wanna say up front, there's a ministry called Grace to You that absolutely kills it with background information and understanding text. And I've been just getting schooled on something I thought I knew a lot about. Uh, turns out I knew way less than I thought I did. And so I wanna get a shout out to them and I would encourage you to check out that ministry as well. Uh, but, but here's where and why I say that, that 2,000 years ago, the enemy of my enemy is my friend was 100% what was driving the death of Jesus. And so 2,000 years ago, there was a ruling council of a Sanhedrin of about 70 members plus a high priest. That's how Jewish culture worked. It was made up of primarily two groups that ran everything. And so religion bled into public life. And so it wasn't just that they had influence over the religious culture. The way Jews saw things, it was everything. And so these people had absolute power, in a sense, over their lives, at least in the form of Judaism. But it was made up of two groups that I want you to know about, and I'm just gonna talk about them for a second, we're gonna move on. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the religious liberals of the day, and the Pharisees were the religious conservatives. And then there were these scribes who were the religious experts in the law. And again, that bled over to not just uh, religious law, but, but public law and how they lived their life. And so these guys had a lot of power. And if you're not new to scripture, you know this truth that Jesus didn't get along with them. In fact, what's interesting about that is they didn't get along with each other. Now, I know this is shocking, so you're gonna just have to put on your seatbelt when I say it, but not all the time do liberals and conservatives get along. Maybe you didn't know that. I don't know if you knew that in church this morning. And so nothing is new under the sun. And so you had these two groups. They were in one leadership position of the Sanhedrin. They had the high priest that kind of ran things over them, and they would fight about pretty much everything, and they just didn't have the same perspective. But they had one thing in common, that they both had a common enemy, and the enemy of my enemy in this situation is my friend. And so there was this uniting evil factor that brought them together, and the evil factor that brought them together is that they absolutely wanted to murder the Son of God. Because he challenged them on every level of power and influence that they possessed. And so as we pick up the text today, I want you to be thinking through that mind's eye that these people who are now in the temple, as Jesus is teaching outside of the temple, within the temple walls, uh, in the courtyard, they are hating him with such a passion that all they can do, the, all that they're consumed with is how can we kill Jesus? And they've been working on this plan for quite a while. They've been going and scheming and thinking, well, if we can get Rome to turn against him or if we can get his own people to turn against him. And you guys know how the script ends if you've been in church or a Christian for any length of time. There's this guy by the name of Judas that they finally are able to get a hold of. And when they get a hold of Judas, he betrays Jesus. And so at this point in the storyline, Jesus is doing his last public teaching. It's Wednesday, he's gonna die on Friday and he keeps silencing the scribes around him. And so get this in your mind's eye. He's in the temple courtyard. There's people, because of the time of year it is, there's people that are coming to the temple at an unusual rate, and he's just spending all day teaching. 
And he's got his uh, leadership team there. There's just people, the common people that are they're, they're experiencing this. You got men, you got women, you got old people, you got young people. And then you have the religious rulers of the day who were very much prideful people. And Jesus kind of gathers them all around. And in their own backyard, in the temple, their house, their rules, their prominence, this is what Jesus says to everyone, including them. He says this in verse 38, he says, 1238, he says, be aware of the scribes. I'll get to the rest in a minute, but he's just sending out this public notice. The scribes within that leadership team were the lawyers. He says, be aware of the scribes. They stood over religious law, civil law, social matters, and they were perceived as, in fact, in fact, Pharisees and Sadducees were perceived as, this council was perceived as an overseeing group that was established to protect the people. And the same people that were supposed to protect the Jewish culture around them, Jesus now, the son of God, who's gained massive popularity because he's done all sorts of miracles, and now the tables are gonna turn quickly on him, but they just kind of dropped rose petals metaphorically at his feet through Palm Sunday. Uh, They had this moment with Christ, and now he says to them in front of everyone, he says, be aware of the scribes. Be aware of these leaders that you know and I know that you can't trust. In fact, when he overturns the the tables in the temple, they're probably cheering him on because they know how corrupt things have gotten. It wasn't kind of bad, it was really bad. And it was all about money. And so these people, this is how trauma works and why it's so devastating. These people that they were supposed to trust were the very people that were uh, taking their money and manipulating them on such a level that it was traumatic. That's how childhood trauma, that's why it's so devastating. It's not just that a bad person does something bad to you. As a therapist, let me just kind of enlighten you on this. This is kind of what they're going through. It's the people that you trust that hurt you that messes with your psyche. When you put your defensives down and say, that person's supposed to help me, and then instead they hurt you, it can wreak havoc on your brain. And so they're living in this type of trauma. In fact, all of Matthew, or most of Matthew 23, correlates with this same story And Jesus, instead of just saying a few things, goes off on a tangent about the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. And he says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And then by verse 15, he says this. He says, woe to you, sons of hell, and woe to you who are being made sons of hell by their teaching. He's saying these guys aren't kind of good. They are literally sons of hell of hell, and now picture in your mind again, they're all in their house in the temple, and they're just listening to Jesus say these things, and they just want to kill him. They just want to kill him. And this is his big critique. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace. And so here's what's going on. Robes in this fashion were exclusive to the religious rulers of the, way, of the day. Now, everyone had robes, but their robes looked a little different. Their robes were more uh, expensive. They were unique. And they had this exclusivity to them where they had these extra large tassels. And it goes back to Numbers 15. But they had these extra large tassels that everyone knew when a scribe or a Pharisee, or a Sadducee came around, that these were the religious rulers of the day. And he says, be aware of these people. They love going into public places with their special robes, and they love being identified as special. 
They, they have to have the title behind the name. They just can't be a person. They have to be a person of incredible significance where you kind of have to bow down and kiss their ring. And they would actually be called things like, oh, great one, and oh, respectable one, and oh, excellent one. They loved exaltation. And so, so one of the reasons, there's many reasons, one of the reasons we look a little different, and um, you guys never bought me a robe, so I haven't worn one yet to date, but uh, I don't plan on doing that, and, and my tassels, you know, I don't have anything special with that. One of the reasons why is um, we see that when Christ goes to the cross, and he rises from death, and, and the veil is, is torn in the curtain, that we all have access to God, that although I've been called to be a leader in this church, I don't have any special privies or special powers uh, it, to speak of where I have this power elevation over you. No, we're all sinners and Christ is the Savior. And so this was the type of stuff that was going on in the culture around Jesus, and he's ripping them to shreds. I was telling the group that was here before you um, that sometimes people will get titles confused, and I got a letter, uh, not because of something I did, but because of something you did. That sounds like I'm accusing you of something, but let me explain. Um, I got a letter because you guys fed all the kids at New Beginnings over Thanksgiving, I got a letter of gratitude as if I was the one that did it. And it said this, it said, uh, Dear Father Rodney, right? This is, that's what it says. It said, Dear Father Rodney, thank you so much for all the food for Thanksgiving. It was awesome. You're the best. And then another person, I don't know if they're joking. I think they were joking. The other person said, Dear Rabbi Rodney, thank you for this, this, and this. And I'm going, man, such prestige and such power that I possess from this makeshift pulpit. Um, but that's kind of the stuff that was going on. And they loved to go to the marketplace because the marketplace is where they would hobnob. And he goes a step further even so when he says they love to go to feasts in verse 39. They love to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. And Jesus actually brings this up before in the Gospels where he criticizes them because they love going to important people, wealthy people's homes, and that's where the feast would take place. And they don't want to just, you know, know them from a distance. When they go to these feasts, Jesus talks about this, they would buddy up to the wealthy person and they'd have to be seen sitting next to him so that then they, as a product of association, could be considered special. They loved recognition. The best way that I could find, I looked it up in the Greek, the best way that I could find in the most root word to describe these messed up, um, almost narcissistic personalities, I was looking at these people, I'm going, what's the best word to describe them, and, and why do I have such a disdain for them, and more importantly, why does Jesus uh, have such a problem with them? I think the best, most theological term to describe these people is ishi. Ishi. You guys know what that means, right? I mean, I don't know. That's actually not a Greek word. I'm just kidding. But sometimes you look at people like, I don't know exactly what's wrong, but they're just, they're just ishy. It's like, thanks, but no thanks. And they're wearing their robes and they're thinking they're better than everybody. And Jesus absolutely takes aim at them because they're a reflection of what people think are godly things. And he's going, they're whitewashed tombs. Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees. You're far from God. You're sons of hell. And you want to tick off someone with power, just call them a son of hell. Not the nickname, not the tattoo you want on your back. That's, that's how that goes. But look at verse 40. Then the plot thickens, and now we're going to get to the widow's might, and I want to break down the backstory so that it all makes sense because I've had some teaching in my life this past week as I'm reading stuff that has enlightened me in a way that I think is very significant that I want to present to you. But look at verse 40 first because I want to build my case. He says to about these people, you devour widows. 
You devour widows' houses for a pretense and you make long prayers. And he says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, just as a reminder, yet again, they're sitting right there. You're gonna see, receive greater con- uh, condemnation. You love praying these lengthy prayers where everyone can hear you in the courtyards and in the marketplace or wherever you would be, and it's all a bunch of garbage. But here's what's significant because he's gonna set it up to say the next thing. He says, you who devour widows' houses. Here's what's going on. Scribes dealt dirty with the people who were underprivileged. And the poorest of the poor and the most broken of the broken were the widows. The Old Testament and the New Testament both command us, and now this is a, something that we're supposed to do too, also thousands of years later, it commands us to take care of these poor widows. Widows had no economy. Widows had no ability. Most women 2,000 years ago were illiterate. The way that you made it work is you either had a husband or a son that would take care of you, and if you lost those assets through a physical crisis, you were gonna live in poverty the rest of your life, no question. There was poverty that everyone lived in, and then there was greater poverty for the widows, and so the Bible tells us to take care of the widows, and this is how messed up the culture was around Jesus. These scribes were also attorneys, and they would kind of bring the widows in, I don't know exactly how it worked, but they would bring the widows in, and then they would consult with them, and they would set up their legal affairs because their husband would die, and uh, hus- men all throughout history pretty much have always had a lower life expectancy than women. And so just a quick challenge to men, and make sure you serve Christ today because, um, you know, we die younger, right? But uh, so that was happening 2,000 years ago. The, the men would die, and then the scribe would get involved, the attorney of the day. He would be over their moral issues and their legal issues, and then he would actually rip them off. And without them really knowing what's going on, he would take Everything that they possess, even their house, uh, at a certain period of time, it would all be transferred over to his own wealth. And Jesus knows this is going on. More importantly, everyone around Jesus knows this is going on. And he absolutely rips them in front of the people that have already been ripped off. I mean, I think people were probably looking around at this point in the teaching. He's been teaching all day on a Wednesday, and it gets silent, and they're just thinking, I can't believe he had the audacity to go there. And they're probably all privately cheering him on. The one group that was supposed to take care of people was the very group that was manipulating people and this is what cost Jesus his life. They have now been scheming in an incredible amount of hatred to the point where they hate each other but the enemy of my enemy is my friend and they worked collaboratively together to kill Jesus and to set him up and this is how it all plays out with the widow's might. So now with that information that you know, I'm gonna read this last portion of scripture. Then the Bible says this, and he sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box, and many rich people put in large sums, and he's just watching it, and then a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, and Mark elaborates that this equivalents to a penny, and he called his disciples to him, and he said to him, truly I say to you, This poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty, out of her poverty, and out of her poverty has put in everything that she had and all that she has to live on. Okay, so here's where it gets juicy. Here's where I have a different perspective now. 
and, and maybe you can give me like a nod of affirmation if this is how you've seen it too. I think there's two points to be made, but the greater point is the under-discussed point, if ever discussed. The, the first point to be made is this woman was generous. And so here's typically how a sermon goes with the widow's might. Every sermon I've ever heard until recently, uh, if, if, you know, it's not really elaborate, but it's just a point to be made, and it's true that she gave everything, and when you give everything like that, you probably have a good heart behind your giving. Uh, but the other point to be made is that it's not really about that at all. That the point to be made isn't really uh, how generous she is or how generous she isn't. The point to be made is that this woman is a victim of a system that has been manipulating her on the most intimate of levels. The very thing she thinks is going to bring her to God is the very thing that's separating from her from God because she's getting a perverted view of religion. This woman is absolutely being manipulated by this, this process of seeing things take place in her life that are very ungodly and thinking to herself, like a shady TV evangelist, I better give them everything so that I can get that extra blessing on my life. That's what's going on in this text. Do you guys watch the Super Bowl this year? There's something if you're 40 and older that probably might bug you that people that are younger have just always accepted as a, something that's normal and you've never known any differently. There's this thing called the review, right? How many of you have a problem with too much sports reviews? Where they play the tape back and change the call. They started doing the NBA, and I'm thinking, I, I can't handle that. Right? They, they get nitpicky with it. And so if you like the team and you get the call and it's a touchdown, you're celebrating it, what makes your heart sink when that flag gets thrown, that challenge call goes out? And when the challenge call goes out, you know that everything that you thought you knew to be true about the play could somehow shift upon further review. And so I think this text, the point I want to make here is that the challenge flag is going out, that the point to be made is that she's generous, but the challenge flag is this, upon further review, there's a greater point to be made, and all of us as followers of Christ have to recognize the greater point. And so here's the greater point, and I would like you to write it down. The widow's story, here it is. The widow's story is less about giving and it's more about taking. The core point that Jesus is making as he is bringing it to the religious leaders of the day is that they have manipulated a religious process that is for self-gain and he calls them sons of hell. And so think about it from this perspective. At what point in the storyline does this woman explain why she gave everything? The, the answer is she doesn't. We don't know. The assumption that her heart was, is that her heart was good, and I'm sure that that was probably true. The bigger point to be made is this Jewish woman had been told her whole life, if she did not give to this system and follow these religious rules, then she wasn't going to be able to, you know, be a good Jew of her time. And Jesus is looking at, he's shaking his head. He's saying, I am coming to not just change a few things, but I'm coming to blow up the system. I don't have a little bit of a problem with these religious rulers. I know they want me dead, and they want me dead because I'm speaking the truth, and everything changes when Jesus steps on the scene. This woman is absolutely a victim of manipulation. This woman is a byproduct of why so many people have a problem with Christianity. This woman has been manipulated her whole life under a system that was set up to fail for her. And this is what I want you to hear. Understand manipulation. It always finds the lowest common denominator. It always preys on the weak 
And maybe it's the weak because they're in a crisis and they can't see past the crisis and so they trust someone over them to tell them something that's true. Or maybe they have intellectual disabilities where they can't really understand things. But I found it to be true that they're almost always naive with a good heart, people that are manipulated. They always see the best in people, even those people that are wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's what's taking place in this text. There's no invitation by Jesus for everyone to follow her pattern. It doesn't mean what she did in itself was wrong. It's just not the point that Jesus is trying to make. He is saying that she's a victim of the system and that, that there's a good guy and a bad guy and no one wants to be the bad guy in the story, but sometimes we are and these guys are the bad guy in the story and Jesus is absolutely taking them to task. That this woman represents all sorts of dysfunction and judgment that's gonna come on the religious rulers of the day and that something absolutely has to change. I wanna explain to you a little further what's actually going on. They had 13 buckets to give. They were trumpets. And it wasn't just one thing that you would give to. You would give to the new shekel dues. You would give to the old shekel dues. You guys, we have two offering things at the door, right? I mean, I guess we need 11 more. They had new shekel dues, old shekel dues, various offerings, money for wood, incense, gold for the temple, each trumpet was specific for a given purpose. And Jesus says in Luke 16, the scribes and the Pharisees are lovers of money. I mean, the point of the text is, as people washed in the blood of Jesus, that we don't want to be like these religious rulers. That we want to be a church and a people that are set apart for God's work, and we don't even want to have the appearance of evil like that in our lives. The people that were calling the shots were greedy. They loved money and they let that be manipulative to the point where they were challenging people and having people like a poor widow, a poor widow who has nothing, thinking that she's gonna live in condemnation if she doesn't give the nothing that she has. This was the only system that this woman would have known. I was, I was just talking in the first service about how new life is different. I wanna explain this to you. Here's one of the most proud things I have about being a pastor that people will call our church every single week. And, and I say this with a caveat that we can't help everyone. We really, I mean, that's just common sense, I would think. But it's not that everyone gets anything they want. But here's the culture that's been established. That help agencies like the Salvation Army or the Mental Health Center or people from New Beginnings or Lutheran Social Services, they'll work with clientele for any given reason and people will have issues paying their heat bill, their electric bill, uh, car problems, uh, maybe they don't have a place to stay and they need a hotel at the, at the White House Inn for a few nights. Here's a common thing that we hear when we pick up the phone. They will say, hey, uh, I was told by my case manager or I was told by my therapist or I was told by my probation officer, that one happens a lot, uh, I, was called, I was told to call you guys because you help people. I mean, we can't help everyone, but how awesome is it that you guys are giving to a system in itself where that's the reputation in Aberdeen, South Dakota? I have nothing and I need help, and I've been told that you're the person to call. In fact, this intensified on such a level of COVID that it, it, it literally uh, just became something that was all and of itself as a ministry in the church. And we helped people locally, but where we really helped people was in Peru. I wanna show you guys a few pictures about what it looks like to get involved with people that are broken and hurting and poor. Uh, this couple, they, they live in a, you can kind of see it, they just live in a tin shack. They represent thousands of people that were helped during COVID because of you guys. That when we heard the needs that were going on in Peru and we have three new lives there, we knew that we had to get involved and so what you guys did, we had the strongest giving year we've ever had at New Life last year, ever. 
I mean, it was like seven figures and then some. It was the most amazing and humbling thing to witness. There was less people that we were seeing and more giving that was taking place. That's because you love Jesus. And and so there was a lot of money that came to help with COVID, and we realized that the most pressing needs were in Peru because they were given a stimulus check of $100, and they couldn't go to their jobs because there was a lockdown, and the only time the grocery stores were open was from 5 to 7 a.m. for a matter of a few months. People were really struggling. And so Osmar, our head campus pastor over there, he knew some cops, and he knew some firefighters, so he got involved in the process when no one else could go outside and distribute food. He worked with them, and we bought the food, and I think we've prepared over 50,000 meals. You heard me right, 50,000 meals for Peru. And there's people like this family. You guys see like the bags of meals? Obviously, this is way more than one meal, and that's how I'm coming to that conclusion. But there's other pictures too. We have Edwin. This is one of our campus pastors, and they've got the food that's really being distributed in the community that they're in. And there's this other picture too of these kids who are getting these meals. In fact, one of the stories that came out of that, kind of a widow's mite type of story, was that there was an old man that, that, that Osmar ended up interacting with and he just knocked on his door to give him some food and the guy was frail and he says, I haven't eaten for three days. Like they, they'd had no access at a certain point during COVID. Now that's not the situation now, but that was the situation then. And so we wanna be this church that's being the hands and feet of Jesus, not only because it's the right thing to do, but because he blasts the religious institutions that are just trying to pad their pocketbooks and manipulating people. We don't even wanna be close to that reality. Something that's so cool about New Life is no matter how much it grows and no matter how much finances come in, I'm not on commission. I don't know if you knew that, I'm not on commission. I mean, maybe I should renegotiate my terms, but it's not like, hey, if if New Life's generous today, then I get a 30% cut because I think I've been working hard casting a vision. That's not how we operate. And you see all of these things happening. It's like the church being the church. And we're gonna celebrate that in a few weeks on Celebration Sunday. You're gonna hear more about the things that are happening. But Jesus takes this point and he drives it home. And here's how leadership works. He has this person under him. It's a disciple. We don't know which one. And then going into chapter 13, I'm gonna paraphrase it. They come out of this a whole experience. The woman just gave the one penny that she owned Jesus blasts the manipulation that's taking place. And then this guy meets with Jesus. They leave the space. They're walking away. There's beautiful temples that he's looking at. And he leaves the space and he says, what wonderful stones and buildings, Jesus. I'm paraphrasing it, but that's kind of what he says. He says, wow, look at this as we're walking away. Look at how beautiful this situation is. Isn't this religious system beautiful? And Jesus looks right at him. He says, not one of these stones will be left here. Not one of these stones is gonna stay in place. And here's the point that I wanna close with with you guys, and I want you to write this point down. This is what Jesus is really getting at. Jesus came to break down, destroy religious walls, and that's a metaphor and that's literal. And the reason it's literal is because he has the temple destroyed through God's providential hand in about 70 AD. The prophecy of not one stone being left on another came true. But on a metaphorical level, it's true in our lives. Jesus breaks down religious walls. That's what he's about. He has this entire plan 
with God the Father and the Holy Spirit before he ever comes to earth. He sees all the corruption taking place. He sees that people are following a system rather than a savior, that people are trying to somehow earn their way to God and everything's getting corrupt and he comes to destroy the system in place and he is destroying religious walls in your life and in my life. And if you don't understand that, then hear me say this, you don't understand the gospel and there's no way that you can be saved. If you miss what I'm telling you this morning, there's no way you can go to heaven and I don't know how to be more direct than that. Jesus came to destroy religious systems and the way that I would define religion is very simple. Anything man-made where you think you can earn your way to God to go to heaven. God did, Jesus did not come to kind of disrupt that process. He blew it up. And he proves it by going to the cross. He took all of our sin and all of our trying to be good enough to earn our way to God. And God says, even our good deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. He says that in Isaiah. He takes it all on the cross. This was the point. He sees what's going on in the temple. He turns the tables. He's disgusted. People are so upset with him. They're plotting his demise. They are going to not just kill him. They are going to kill him in a brutal fashion to make a point and to mock him and to shame him. But here's the deal. He takes all of our sin. God says the wage of sin is death. Our sin goes upon him on the cross. And the gospel is this, that not with any doing of our own, he takes our sin on the cross. Three days later, this is why you can go to heaven. He rises from death and he conquers it. Not because you were good enough to earn your way to God, but because God in his love sends his love down to you and puts his son on a cross to be punished in your place. That all of his wrath towards your sin, every time you've said, God, I'm gonna do my thing and not your thing, I'm gonna act like I'm the creator and sustainer of the universe that I call the shots instead of you. All of that wrath being poured out for our sin goes on his son, Jesus Christ, instead of us, and that's how we get made right with God. That's how we can be in relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, not because of any religious system that we follow. Your system cannot save you. That's the gospel. And here's where it just gets super confrontational. Man creates a system, God provides a savior. Becoming a member, I'll just get more controversial the further I go. Becoming a member of New Life is a good thing. There's gonna be an opportunity coming up. But when you go to meet on your last breath with Jesus and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, instead of saying, depart from me, I never knew you, here's what he's not gonna say. Well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you so much for that membership class. I know it meant a lot to you. It meant even more to me. Thank you. He's not gonna say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you so much for tithing. And there's, there's people that could give every penny. Theoretically, you could give every penny to any local church you want and still spend eternity apart from God in hell. Because it's a work. It's not a relationship with Christ. It's not putting your faith in him that although we need you to give so that we can keep doing things that I just showed you and fund the ministry, and I, I hope that at this point you, you're showing you care by the fact that you give so much, but uh, hopefully we've earned that trust as a leadership team in you that you know that the resources are being spent wisely. But that money that you give in no way gives you a status above anyone else or gets you some type of punch ticket into heaven because your works can't save you. Going through confirmation, depending on your background, you might have been thinking, even if you weren't told, that somehow that put you in right relationship with God. You can go through confirmation class. You can go through catechism. You can get baptized, and that's where it gets more controversial. 
You can take communion. I mean, some of us in these spaces have been raised where if I follow these uh, religious rituals and jump through these hoops, then the way that I get saved is I earned my way to God through doing these things, and Jesus is screaming it from the cross. That's not how it works. These are the same scribes and Pharisees that I blasted, and now you're 2,000 years later being the same religious hypocrite as them. Your status and your works can't save you. It's not because of what you do to get to me. It's the fact that I came down to you because broken can't fix broken. That's the gospel. The only thing that can save you is the blood of Jesus covering your sins. The next response is so simple. It's so beautiful. It's so transparent. This is the gospel. We've been going through it for six months. Your response to Christ is to trust in him with your salvation and obey his word. Not because you have to, not because it's a religious hoop, but because when you know what he did on that cross and how he lived that blameless life in your place coming down from his throne in heaven, when you see him for who he really is, your obedience is out of love and you want to serve this kind of savior. Jesus is a savior worth following. Jesus is so good. Jesus is not a hope. He is the hope. He's the only way. And when we stand before him one day, and some of us, that's not going to be too long. Who knows? He's either going to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from your resume, depart from me. I never knew you because you didn't put your trust in me and your hope in me. You didn't love me, and you didn't trust me and obey me and follow me as Savior. Do you know Christ? Are you serving him? Or are you serving a system to try to get to God? That's the word for today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for loving us. That you open our eyes through your gospel to the truth of how we find salvation. And for all of us in these spaces and people that are listening online or that will listen in our online communities in the days to follow, We pray that there's this supernatural time, Holy Spirit, where you convict hearts. That people would see you and they would know who you truly are. That you're not a way to heaven. That you're not a good guy as a good teacher or moral. You are the savior of the universe. And our role and responsibility is not to try to do more to earn our way to you. Our role and responsibility is to submit and surrender our life before your feet and say, Jesus, Save me from my sins. I'm in need of saving. I believe that you went to a cross in my place. I believe that you died for the, from the wrath that should have been on me for my sin. And I believe that three days later, you rose from death. And because you rose from death, I can have eternity with you. But I can also have life in the here and now. I can have a new life and be a new creation in you today. If there's anyone in this space that has never submitted and surrendered their life to Jesus Jesus, I pray that right now you would grab their hearts with the gospel. We want to follow you, not a religious system. And I pray this in your name. Amen.